Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode one of a new sub-series called The Last Crusades and the title of this episode is The Fall of the Templars. Now in the last episode we heard about the destruction of Outremer in 1291. The Mamluk Sultan al-Ashraf besieged and captured Acre, the Crusader capital, and then the rest of the Crusader cities along the coastline fell pretty much without a fight as their inhabitants understandably realised There was no hope, and they sailed away to Cyprus, which was the last Crusader stronghold. I regard 1291 as the end of the true Crusades, in the sense that it was the end of the concept of a Crusade, as originally preached by Pope Urban II in 1095, as an expedition to reconquer Jerusalem. But, not surprisingly, it took much longer for the idea of a Crusade to die in the medieval world, and indeed the word Crusade is often loosely used even today to describe anything which is approached with zealous determination, like I'm going on a crusade to lose weight. But in the 13th and 14th centuries, the memory of the real crusade was still very much in people's minds. And this new miniseries will tell the story of what happened after the crusades in the Holy Land ended. And we'll start with the reaction in the West to the fall of Outremer in 1291. This was actually fairly apathetic because the really wasn't the popular will to go on a crusade as there was with the first crusade or the political prestige of leading a crusade which was the real reason behind most of the subsequent crusades after the first crusade led by the great European monarchs like Richard the Lionheart and Frederick Barbarossa and Louis the Ninth. But that doesn't mean to say there weren't some pretty significant military expeditions against Islam which were called crusades over the next hundred years after 1291. The first was a major attack on Mamluk Egypt in 1365, and then a really massive military operation against the Ottoman Turks, who were very successfully invading Europe, which ended in the Battle of Nicopolis in 1396. But before we get to these, we'll look at one of the most extraordinary consequences of the fall of Outremer, which was the persecution and destruction of the Templars. Now, the Templars, the Hospitallers and the Teutonic Knights were the three military orders that had been set up to defend Outremer. And of course, when it was destroyed, they found they had nothing to do. But the Templars were immensely wealthy, and this basically proved their undoing, since they attracted a lot of enemies and they were increasingly viewed as a subversive cult with all sorts of strange practices. This led to some pretty grisly persecution with the Grand Master being burned at the stake in Paris in 1314. And these grim stories about the Templars are, of course, part of Dan Brown's wonderful book, The Da Vinci Code, which has been so popular. So, without further ado, let's get on with this episode. As before, I'll read from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. (laughs) 
With the fall of Acre and the expulsion of the Crusaders from Syria, the crusading movement began to slip out of the sphere of practical politics in Europe. After Saladin's reconquest a century before, the Christians still retained great fortresses on the mainland, Tyre, Tripoli and Antioch. An army of rescue had these bases from which it could operate. Now these bases were gone. The little waterless island of Ruad was useless. Expeditions must be organised and provision from across the sea, from Cyprus. The only other Christian state that remained was the kingdom of Armenia in Cilicia. But the journey from Cilicia into Syria was difficult and the Armenians could not all be trusted. Again, the loss of Jerusalem in 1187 had come as a terrible shock to Christendom. So sudden was the collapse of the kingdom. But everyone knew in 1291 that Outremer was crumbling. Its disappearance caused grief and indignation, but no surprise. West Western Europe now had overriding problems of its own. There was no religious fervour that would drive its monarchs eastward as in the days of the Third Crusade. Still less could a great popular expedition like the First Crusade be launched. The peoples of the West were now enjoying new comforts and prosperity. They would never respond now to the apocalyptic preaching of a Peter the Hermit with the simple, ignorant piety of their ancestors two centuries before. They were unconvinced by the promise of indulgences and shocked by the use of the Holy War for political aims. Nor was a great military expedition possible with the great empire of Byzantium reduced to a shadow. The end of Outremer was grievous news, but it provoked no violent reaction. Only the Pope, Nicholas IV, sought to implement his sorrow by deeds, but there was no one to whom he could turn the prestige of the papacy had been crippled by the ill success of the Sicilian War. Kings no longer troubled to carry out the papal bidding. The Western emperor, whose ecumenical power the popes had broken, was fully occupied in Germany. If he emerged, it was only to take a wistful expedition into Italy. King Philip IV of France was able and active, but having extricated his kingdom from the Sicilian War, he spent his energy in building up the royal authority. Edward, King of England, had his hands full in Scotland. Moreover, England and France were moving into the state of intense rivalry that was soon to produce the Hundred Years' War. The monarch with the strongest sea power in the Mediterranean, James II of Aragon, was at war with Charles II of Naples. Further east, the Byzantine emperor was busy enough warding off the Turks on the one hand and the new Balkan monarchies of Bulgaria and Serbia on the other. The merchant cities of Italy were too busy fighting each other. The kings of Cyprus and Armenia were in the front line now, and one or other must serve as the base for any new crusade, but they were desperately anxious not to provoke the Mamluk Sultan. The king of Armenia had to contend with the Turks as well as the Mamluks, and the king of Cyprus had to solve the problem of the refugees from Outremer. Moreover, both royal houses, which were 
now closely interconnected by marriage, were soon troubled by family quarrels and civil war. The Mongol Ilkhan of Persia remained a potential ally, but the new Ilkhan Argun had been cruelly disappointed by his failure to rouse the West to action before the fall of Acre. He would therefore do no more. In 1295, soon after his death, the next Ilkhan Ghazan adopted Islam as the state religion of the Ilkhanate and threw off his allegiance to the great Mongol Khan in the east. Ghazan was a good friend of the Christians, for he had been brought up by the Despina Khatun, the Ilkhan Abaga's gracious wife, whom all the East revered, and his conversion in no way lessened his hatred of the Mamluks and the Turks. But there were no more Mongol embassies to Rome, and no more hope that Persia would become a Christian power. There was, it is true, a papal envoy in Peking in China called Brother John of Monte Corvino. But though he enjoyed the friendship of the great Khan Kublai, the great Khan had no interest now in the affairs of the Near East. There remained the military orders. They had been founded to fight for Christendom in the Holy Land, and that was still their chief duty. After the fall of Acre, the Teutonic Order abandoned the East for its Baltic possessions, but the Templars and the Hospitallers set up their headquarters in Cyprus. There, unable to perform their proper tasks, they took to meddling in local politics. The Pope could probably count on them to provide help for any actual crusading expedition, for their vast endowments all over Europe aroused jealousy that might have dangerous results unless they were proved to be justified, but the Temple and Hospital un aided could not undertake a crusade. Pope Nicholas had failed to rouse the West after the fall of Tripoli and he was equally incapable after the greater disaster at Acre. His advisers gave him no help. Charles II of Naples supported the suggestion first made some years previously that to end their rivalry, the military orders should be amalgamated. But he thought that military action in the East was impossible for the moment. He advocated an economic blockade of Egypt and Syria. It would be easy to maintain and very damaging to the Mamluk Sultan. But that too was in fact impossible. Neither the Italian nor the Provençal and Aragonese merchant cities would ever cooperate. Their welfare depended on the eastern trade, much of which passed through the Mamluk Sultan's dominions. Indeed, were it to cease, they would no longer be able to maintain their fleets, and the Muslims might well dominate the Mediterranean Sea. It was unfortunate that the chief export, with which the Christians paid for eastern goods, consisted of armaments, the church protested against this nefarious exchange of goods, but business interests were now stronger than the church, and Pope Nicholas IV died in 1291, disappointed in his endeavours. None of his successors achieved a better result, but though the soldiers for a crusade were lacking, the feeling that Christendom had been shamed produced a new wave of propaganda. The propagandists were no longer itinerant 
preachers, as in the past, like Peter the Hermit, but men of letters who wrote books and pamphlets to show the need for a holy expedition. In 1291, a Franciscan friar, Fidencio of Padua, whom the Pope had often used in the past for diplomatic missions and who had travelled widely in the East, published a treatise called the Liber Recuperationis Terrae Sancti, which he dedicated to the Pope, Nicholas IV. It contains a learned history of the Holy Land, together with a discussion of the type of army needed for its recovery and of the alternative routes that this army might follow. It was informative and well-reasoned, but Fidencio assumed that an army would be available and considered that the commander should make the ultimate choice of the route. Next year in 1292, a certain Thaddeus of Naples published an account of the fall of Acre. It is a vivid narrative embroidered by lavish accusations of cowardice against practically everyone who was there. Thaddeus's violent language was intentional. His objective was to shame the West into launching a crusade, and he ended his book with a great appeal to the Pope, to the princes, and to the faithful in Europe to rescue the Holy Land, which is the Christian's heritage. But the institutions most affected by the Mamluk destruction of Outremer were the military orders. The loss of Outremer left them in a state of uncertainty. The Teutonic Knights solved this problem by concentrating all their energies in Baltic conquest. But the temple and the hospital found themselves restricted and unappreciated in Cyprus. The hospital, wiser than the temple, began to look for another home. In 1306, a Genoese pirate, Vignolo dei Vignoli, who had obtained a lease of the lands of Kos and Leros from the Byzantine emperor Andronicus, came to Cyprus and suggested to the grandmaster of the hospital, Fulk of Villaray, that he and the hospital should conquer the Greek islands around Rhodes. While Fulk sailed to Europe to obtain the Pope's confirmation for the scheme, a flotilla of hospitallers helped by some Genoese galleys landed at Rhodes and slowly began the reduction of the island. The Byzantine garrison fought well. It was only by treachery that the great castle of Filermo fell to the invaders in November 1306, and the city of Rhodes itself held out for another two years. At last, in the summer of 1308, a galley sent from Constantinople with reinforcements for the garrison was driven by storms to Cyprus, where it was seized at Famagusta by a Cypriot knight. Its commander, who was a Rhodian, agreed, in order to save his life, to negotiate the surrender of the city of Rhodes, which opened its gates to the order on the 15th of August. The hospital at once set up its headquarters in the island and made the city with its fine harbour the strongest fortress in the Levant. The conquest, achieved at the expense of the Christian Byzantines, was hailed in the West, nevertheless, as a great crusade triumph, and indeed it gave the hospital new vigour and the means to carry on its appointed task. But the wretched inhabitants of the island had to wait for more than six centuries before they recovered their liberty. Meanwhile, the temple was less enterprising and less fortunate. It had always roused more hostility than the hospital, mainly because it was wealthier. It had long been the chief banker and moneylender in the East, successful at a profession which does not inspire affection. Its policy had always been notoriously selfish and irresponsible. Although its knights had always fought gallantly in times of war, their financial activities had brought them into close contact with the Muslims, 
Muslims. Many of them had Muslim friends and took an interest in Muslim religion and learning. There were rumours that behind his castle walls, the order studied a strange esoteric philosophy and indulged in ceremonies that were tainted with heresy. There were said to be initiation rites that were both blasphemous and indecent, and there were whispers of orgies for the practice of unnatural vices. It would be unwise to dismiss these rumours completely as the unfounded invention of enemies. There was probably just enough substance in them to suggest the line along which the order could be most convincingly attacked. When the Grand Master of the Templars, James of Molay, went to France in 1306 to discuss with Pope Clement the projected crusade, he heard that charges were being made there against his order and he demanded a public inquiry. The Pope hesitated. He realised that the French King Philip was determined to suppress the order and he did not dare to offend him. In October 1307, Philip suddenly arrested all the members of the order that were in France and had them tried for heresy on charges laid by two disreputable knights who had been expelled from the temple. The accused gave their evidence under torture, and though a few firmly denied everything, the majority were glad to make any admissions that were required of them. Next spring, at Philip's request, the Pope ordered every ruler in whose dominions the Templars had possessions to arrest them and to start similar trials. After some hesitation, the various kings of Europe consented, except for the Portuguese, who would have no truck with this sorry business. Everywhere else, Templar property was confiscated and the knights were hauled before the courts. Torture was not always used, but there was a fixed inquiry and the accused knew what they were expected to confess, and many of them did confess. It was particularly important for the Pope that the Cypriot government should cooperate for the headquarters of the temple was in Cyprus, but the ruler there was now Henry II's brother Amalric, who had temporarily ousted the king from power with the help of the Templars. Therefore, when the Pope's envoy arrived from Avignon in May 1308 with a letter from the Pope ordering the immediate arrest of the Templar knights, Amalric delayed in carrying out the order and the knights had time to prepare to defend themselves but after a brief resistance they surrendered on the 1st of June. Their treasure, apart from a large portion that they hid so well that it was never recovered, was taken from Limassol to Amalric's house in Nicosia and the knights themselves were placed under guard. There they remained for three years. In May 1310, after King Henry II had been restored to power, the Cypriot Templars were at last brought to trial at the urgent insistence of the Pope. In France, many of their brotherhood had already been burned at the stake and all over Europe the members of the order were imprisoned or destitute. King Henry had no love for the knights who had betrayed his cause a few years before, but he gave them a fair trial. 76 of them were accused, all denied the charges. Distinguished witnesses swore to their innocence, and one of the few hostile witnesses declared that he had only come to suspect them after receiving the Pope's account of their crimes. They were entirely acquitted. When news of their acquittal reached the Pope in Avignon, He angrily wrote to King Henry to order a second trial, and he sent a personal delegate to see that his justice was done. The result of the retrial, which took place in 1311, is unrecorded. It seems that the Templars were kept in prison. They were still there in 1313 when Peter of Rodez read out before all the bishops and higher clergy of the island the Pope's decree of the 12th of March 1312, suppressing the whole Templar order and handing over all 
all its wealth and possessions to the Hospitallers. In fact, the hospital received very little. Meanwhile, the Templars in Cyprus were never released, but they were probably more fortunate than their Grand Master, who, after years of imprisonment and torture and many confessions, was burned to death in Paris in March 1314. The abolition of the Templars and the migration of the Hospitallers to Rhodes left the Cypriot kingdom as the only Christian government interested in the Holy Land. The king was nominally king of Jerusalem and for many generations to come, the kings after their coronation with the Cypriot crown at Nicosia received the crown of Jerusalem at Famagusta, the city that lay nearest to their lost dominion. The Syrian coast was, moreover, of strategic importance to Cyprus. An aggressive enemy there would endanger its very existence. Fortunately, the Mamluk Sultan was too afraid of a new crusade himself to make use of the Syrian ports. He preferred that they should lie derelict. Nevertheless, Cyprus was in constant danger from the Mamluks. Believing that to attack was the best defence, King Henry in 1292 had sent 15 galleys aided by 10 from the Pope to raid Alexandria in Egypt. It was a futile effort and merely determined the Mamluks Luke, Sultan al-Ashraf, to conquer Cyprus. Cyprus, 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 he cried as he ordered a hundred galleys to be built. But he had other grander schemes. The Mongols must first be routed and Baghdad occupied. His ambitions alarmed his emirs. They murdered him on the 13th of December 1293. It was a poor reward for the determined young prince who had completed Saladin's work and driven the last remnant of the Crusaders from Syria. There was now a long period of peace between the Christians and Muslims, but it was to be broken by the very last crusade to attempt to recover the Holy Land, and this was the so-called Alexandrian Crusade. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll look at this so-called Alexandrian Crusade, which was, in fact, a major attack on Egypt in 1365. See you then.